Hello and welcome to Adverse Reactions Season 2. My name is David Faulkner and this is my co-host. And Chappelle. As much fun as the first season of Adverse Reactions was, I think Season 2 is better. Hidden. Secretive. Exactly. The toxicology that happens when you're not looking. Or toxicology that you forgot about. It's still important and we're here to talk about it. Welcome to Season 2 of Adverse Reactions. Hidden toxicology. Sweating it out. Exercise versus toxic exposures. It's actually not a high level exercise. We're considering regular people that don't have time. And sometimes you have other diseases also, cofactors. So we want everybody to be able to exercise and have the benefits. Or Luma Mello makes us walk. How exercise affects things like cancer and liver disease. Fatty liver disease doesn't have necessarily to be caused by the diet. It could be caused by chemical exposure. So chemical exposure are exposed all the time through the water. And sometimes, yes, you are doing all the right things and you're still being exposed to things that would just harm your body. Hello, and welcome to the Adverse Reactions Podcast. My name is David Faulkner, and I am joined today by my delightful co-host, Anne Chappelle. We are joined today by our guest, Luma Melo. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm excited about this. Tell us a little bit about yourself and a top-level view about work you've done with exercise and talks. So I'm Brazilian, and in Brazil, we play soccer a lot. So I was raised in a very active way. I always play sports. I actually play in college. At the university level, I play rugby and also basketball. So I always liked that. I always had that in my life. But then I had to choose between going to professional basketball or going into the university. Because in Brazil, we don't really have this kind of scholarships like here in the U.S. where you can study but also practice your sport. So I chose becoming a scientist and go for the education path. I actually did my undergrad in physics and then my master's in biophysics so I was not aiming to do what I do right now but I just inside of me I just kind of like this so much sports and on top of that nowadays I work specifically with the liver my mom had hepatitis when I was young she had 20% chance of living she was subject for a drug test that saved her basically she would get one shot a month that was shipped from the U.S. to Brazil. So I started with physics and then biophysics, and then I even did a master in philosophy of science. My path to what I do right now is very not traditional at all, <laughs> but it was funny because now I do something I love and I have the liver. It's like I'm doing research for something that actually my mom had and the exercise that was always in my life. So that's how I got to do what I do. A big person involved in that is Dr. Amit Agar. He's a professor in the Indiana University. And he was the one actually that got me really into the exercise. And I actually met him several years before I started my PhD with him in Brazil. When I gave a talk, he was there visiting. He just needed someone and I loved the subject. So I find that interesting that you were able to make a connection. And I'm assuming that he was doing some kind of visiting scholar yes. kind of thing. But this idea that you met this person, you had a good connection, and you were able to find a path forward together and come to the U.S. Because I was wondering how you got to Indiana from Brazil. It took a leap of faith for you to come to the U.S., Yes, a lot. <laughs> it was really a leap of faith with everything, with the city, with the university, with him. And actually later, I ended up also working with Dr. James Klonig, and that's the connection with SOT and toxicology. He was the one that introduced me to all of that, but I was only introduced to him because of Amit Agar. Which brings me to this connection I was realizing when I was looking at your research that we've met before. Oh, wait, in the Dinosaur Museum? Yes, at yes. SOT. <laughs> 
<laughs> and you were with Jim Clownig, who I had known. We were talking and you're the only Brazilian toxicologist I knew. <laughs> so I said, wait, I know one other Brazilian toxicologist and introduced you to Monica. Yes. This whole idea of networking and strong women <laughs> and just finding somebody else that really could make you feel more comfortable or be able to chatter with in your own native language. I have even more connections because after you did this that I completely forgot, and I'm so happy you remind me of that. I was more into the women in toxicology session and actually I ended up meeting a lot of Brazilians in that women in tox. And I ended up interviewing them because I noticed I was reading the history of toxicology just for fun. Just for fun. Just for fun. <laughs> As one does. And I thought, I don't know the history of toxicology in Brazil. Then I started reading about it. I saw there's not much out there. And I noticed, which is very interesting, is that it's a new area there. So the people that actually started, they're still alive, which is amazing. And not only that, but the ones they started, they're mostly women. So nowadays it's more problematic, not necessarily most are women, but the ones that started were mostly women. And I interviewed them and then I wrote a paper that is out there now, it's published about these women. It was very nice because I was able to talk to all of them and all of them are part of Society of Toxicology. So we're able to exchange a lot of things. So again, do you see one thing leads to the other, that leads to the other. It's amazing. So you're part of the Hispanic Organization of Toxicologists. I think they abbreviate that HOT. Yes, I am. Yeah, proudly. Proudly HOT. Probably hot. No, it's a great, I think on the women of toxicology, the hot and also the carcinogenesis session. I think these are the ones that really helped me with networking and opportunities, work opportunities, and even just personal relation. As you said, like finding someone that speaks your native language or have experience similar to yours, working in the same field, it's super nice. SOT is being a blessing. So let's dig in a little bit to the work on exercise and physiology that you got here. It would seem that you are in favor of exercise, broadly speaking. For me, I'm like, yeah. but you like it. <laughs> I think the part that I most like about the method that me and Amit develop is that it's not a hard activity you have to do. It's basically when you translate to humans, the amount, the quantity, the dose of exercise that we use for those animals is actually the equivalent of a fast walk, 30 minutes, five days a week. So I'm not telling everybody, go to the gym and do the weights or run for an hour. It's not a big thing. Just be more active, basically. And the good part is that we did all those research in non-alcoholic fatty liver, which is the very prevalent disease around one third of the population in the U.S. have it. Really? Yes. It's mind-blowing when you think about that, yes. Because it's not necessarily you have symptoms and not necessarily you're overweight. A lot of people, they're thin, they also have fatty liver. And there are different causes for it. We focus on diet and more specific high-fat diet, which we call the Western diet. It's like a fast food diet. But there are other causes. It could be genetics. It could be some sort of chemicals that could cause that. There's so many things that could cause the fatty liver. But it affects one-third of the population. And there's not really a cure because all the drugs that were tested, in the end, they cause some kind of toxicity. So actually, exercise, it's believed to be the only therapy for it. You can't really do experiment, exercise experiments in vitro. 
But then you see with the animals, the traditional models we have either cause a lot of stress or they're not translatable to humans. The one that best translates to human from the traditional models, it's a model that you put the animal in a treadmill and you just make them run as much as you can. And the good thing about the treadmill is that you can control the velocity, the time that they are there. So you control the dose of the exercise. But to make them run in that way, in the treadmill, and in a high level kind of exercise, the methods that are used to stimulate them to run that way is either electrical shocks or poking. Which is exactly how I end up running, <laughs> is that I end up being poked or, <laughs> or electrocuted. That's really the only way it really works for me either. Because, and you love it, right? You know, it's something I look forward to every <laughs> single day. Okay, so you're not poking the animals, you're not electrocuting them. Not poking, no. Okay, good. So we're not doing this. What Ami came up with, and then afterwards it just helped him develop a little bit further, is that we also use treadmills, but we put wheels on top of the treadmills. And the mice, they like the wheels, they like the shape. Our protocol is just we increase the velocity very slowly. So we do a whole acclimatization where they run very little for five minutes and then 10 minutes. So it's not we put them 30 minutes in velocity X. We just slowly increase. So every minute we increase a little bit and we progress those velocities in the weeks that we're doing the training. So it's a very slow implementation of the velocity. And not only that, but if they refuse to run, normally they run very well, but there's always one or two that they are rebels and they're like, nope. That is the the (laughs) rat that's named the Chappelle rat. There you go. (laughs) What we do is just decrease the velocity a little bit, basically give them time to breathe, you know, be equivalent to us. You're tired and then you just decrease a little bit, drink a sip of water and then come back to it. It's the same thing. So we just lower the velocity a little bit and then slowly increase again and they just run. That works perfectly. It's actually not a high level exercise. We're considering regular people that don't have time. And sometimes you have other diseases also, cofactors. So we want everybody to be able to exercise and have the benefits. That's one of the things we had in the back of our mind. So given that amount of exercise, we actually show for the non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, just that amount of exercise actually was able to completely revert the liver. So basically your liver is sick. You have a lot of fat accumulation, inflammation. You already have fibrosis. You have non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. And then just with 10 weeks of this exercise program, you completely changed your liver to a healthy one. Now, one thing, all the markers you see in the disease was completely reversed only when you have the exercise with the change of diet. So that would be basically a person goes to the doctor, the doctor says you have fatty liver, you have to take care of yourself. And that person changed their lifestyle, changed the diet and starts to exercise. We did another intervention where you don't change the diet at all. You continue eating the fast food, but you exercise. For that group, you do see benefits. You do see fat content decreasing. You see a little bit less inflammation, a little bit less fibrosis, but your liver is still sick. Let me just make sure I understand. So this was in mice. Mice, yes. But you haven't demonstrated this fully in humans yet. Not yet. Hopefully so. I just want to make sure because I'm not quite ready to give up all those things. But I have a good friend who passed from multiple myeloma a few years ago. She took really good care of herself and she exercised all of the time and she did all the regular stuff. So how do you come to grips with that against if you exercise regularly, that's healthy because then your body really is turning on you and you're like, damn it, I should have had that donut. 
fatty liver disease doesn't have necessarily to be caused by the diet. It could be caused by chemical exposure. So chemical exposure are exposed all the time through the water. And sometimes, yes, you are doing all the right things and you're still being exposed to things that would just harm your body. I understand the frustration. <laughs> well, this gets at what I think is an interesting question. So you've showed that there's a connection between diet and exercise and fatty liver disease. Diet is something that we can control, but what about things that we can't control? Is there any evidence that exercise affects the resistance to other environmental exposures or contamination? Yeah, if I'm not running outside, I'm not being exposed to that particulate matter. So it's healthier for me to sit on my couch. <laughs> and eat that donut. <laughs> so I actually read research on how exercise helped the body clean itself from a certain chemical, then prevent. So we do know that it helps with, for example, the immune system. And it does keep your metabolism, at least in the liver, strong. So when you are exposed to a chemical, your body will deal with that kind of a chemical a little bit better than if you're not healthy. But most of the research is more on how exercise helps clean that toxic out of your body faster than not. Through like circulation, right? You have improved circulation. Yes, more or less. Well, you could have better metabolic enzymes. You could have other positive inductions. Yes, exactly. I think it's more on metabolism than anything else, but it does help circulation. Okay. Because my initial thought was if exercise helps cope with uh, disease and things like that, then Olympic athletes have got to be immune to most toxins at that point. But it's funny you say that because there is a right dose because actually exercise can be a stress to your body can actually be harmful. The dose makes the poison. So with exercise is the same thing. So it's, there is a level that is actually stressful and harmful to you. And those elite athletes, they are both that dose. So this is something else I was wondering too. Is there a difference between the sexes? Did you see male mice versus female mice with the fatty liver disease or? I still have to do more on the different sexes, but there is it's just an intrinsic difference in the gene expression and just metabolism in general between the female and male in mice, just in general. So without the exercise, without an intervention, without diet, if you just analyze the livers from a female and a male mouse, it's completely different. And then also exercise affects the genders differently. The female mice, they are better in running long distance and for a longer time when the male mice are not. So just for that, that difference in the way they like to exercise or the endurance of their muscles, just that already gives them a different effect. Because again, it's like the dose of exercise is different for them. You just see naturally, intrinsically, the difference in their livers. And then also they will run in different ways. So you also different response to that. But in general, it is the same. Once you get the fatty liver and you exercise them, you still see the benefits. So I have to ask, are you thinking one day about going back to Brazil? You've got a lot of female role models there, strong toxicology, mild winters. There's good food. Good food. <laughs> Great dancing. Great dancing. <laughs> Having an opportunity to go back to Brazil, do you think it's quote unquote easier to do research potentially in Brazil because of the way it's funded or the way that it works versus the U.S.? It is completely different. And I don't know if it's easier or not. Here, everything is grants. And if you don't have a grant, you're nothing. There's no way you can do your science. They're not necessarily, the university give you the condition. So not necessarily you need grants. You can have extra grants if you want. But the universities give you conditional lab to work. And not only that, but in Brazil, we do have public, full public, 100% free education. 
It's actually the best universities. They are the free ones. It's a good system in a way that the government is constantly funding not only the university, like the teaching, but also the research. So I love that system. And I think it works better. I think the scientists are free and less stressed, more relaxed. I feel like here there's a lot of more tension and pressure. But there's also the bad side, which is if the government at that time, it's not funding or don't think science should be funded that much or thinks the funds should go to another area, then science lose. And that's what has happened. That's why I left Brazil. If it was for me, I would never leave Brazil. I love my country. And yes, the first opportunity I can to go back, I would, not even thinking about it. But I left because that what was happening. The government at that time, actually, they were taking away the funds from science. All my friends are back there just not being able really to do much, just waiting until we have government that gives the funds back, which is very sad. But yes, if it was for me, the first opportunity I would have, I will go. I really like here so easy in the US just because yes, once you do have the grant and you do have the money, you can do so much so fast compared to Brazil because most of the things we import from the US. So it takes more time, it's taxable, blah, blah, blah. From reagents to equipments. It's easier in that way that we just have everything here. And the US is so good in doing science and technology. If there's one thing you guys are good, it's definitely that. And for me, it's so good to come and learn not only that, but the science here in the US is so international. So you just see all these people from all these different backgrounds. And I think this is amazing. Something if I stayed in Brazil, I wouldn't have and I wouldn't learn as much as I do here and I did but still it's my country and I really love it <laughs> and I do feel almost the obligation of coming back I did get free education I did go to the best in the country the university and got my undergrad and my master's there so I almost feel like I do have to at some point in my life it won't be soon unfortunately come back and do something for the country yeah, that makes sense. You talk about how you took this winding road to get to where you are right now in terms of what you're doing. And just looking at the things that you've written, it's an incredible range. You wrote a book about quantum physics. And I think we should address that because it's very, it's a great book. I really enjoyed it. <laughs> but you also have this history of women in toxicology in the United States, in addition to Brazil, and a paper about, I love the title of this, Psychosomatic as We Know, which my understanding of it, it seemed like philosophy of science philosophy of etiology of disease. How do you manage having so many interests, aside from just writing everything? It would see. How do you have time to exercise? I think <laughs> yeah. is what David's asking, because clearly you must have like a treadmill, a non-prodding electrified treadmill with a keyboard in front of it. Because or a dictaphone. It could be she's dictating. You're quite prolific. <laughs> yes, my wife jokes a lot about how I just do a lot. I just like that. I think, I don't know, it's in me. I don't know how I do have the time. I think I'm fast. I write fast. I was not like I was born like this. It just... I just developed that. This is a blessing, but could be hurtful because I do see now I'm writing a grant. I just see that this is one of the things they evaluate, how much I publish exactly in the topic that I'm asking the funding for. And sometimes I do look back at my CV and I'm like, oh, I'm all over the place. I don't know. I don't have one thing that I worked my entire life. So that could hurt me. So I just see the bad side of that. But I love that. I love because it doesn't get boring. And once I get stuck in one thing, I just go and do this other thing in this other area. And then I like that, actually. <laughs> in looking through a lot of the things that you've written, it's written in a way that everyone can understand. Yeah. That takes a lot of skill to be able to translate a complex topic into something that 
my mom is going to read this book on quantum physics and understand. And I love the beginning of your book as well, that you really explain why you're doing this and how you're driven for it and recognizing not just the big names, but the people that built the science for the others to stand on. And that's a wonderful model. So is there a question in there? What other things were good models for you? to learn how to write this way. Could you talk a little bit about your passion for communicating? That's interesting. I never thought of this. Everything I write, I just do force myself to write in the simplest way I can. I actually had to learn how to write in a not simple way because I think <laughs> my brain just goes towards that naturally. I don't know if it's because I'm the first scientist in my family. There is one other biologist, but she's more like a lab tech. She's more in the technical side of it. I'm the first doctor in my family, the first one to even go to grad school. So I think maybe because I was brought up in this family where my father never even finished elementary school. My mom also have incomplete studies. I wrote that book so my parents would and my family would understand what I do, the quantum physics book. My mom still reads it and then she's like, wait, I do not understand this. I need to go. And then she comes and asks me questions. So it was not simple enough yet. (laughs) Maybe it was because of that. But also I do have in the back of my mind the entire time that we are doing science to develop the world, humanity, cure diseases. But if we just do that and don't share that with the world, the rest of the population, then you just see this disparity. The small elite of scientists are developing themselves and humankind and they are progressing. But then we're leaving all these other people behind that don't have the privilege or don't want to go through the training to understand these things. I always keep that in the background. I actually wish I did more. And I think we science have a lot of knowledge to just keep to ourselves. It's true. We're getting close to the end of time. We have a couple of questions we like to try to ask everybody. And it's always interesting the responses we get. Anne, would you like to start with this? Yes. And I'm afraid actually to ask this question, Luma, because I can only imagine how many of these you have. So I was wondering what your hidden talent is. Oh. Besides rugby. Astrophysics. Astrophysics and (laughs) quantum physics and multiple languages. Philosophy. (laughs) I think mine is actually painting. I like to paint a lot and I do it a lot. And I like the watercolor. I had no technical training, so I just do whatever I want. But I wish I did have because my brain's wanting to do one thing. But then when I try to do it, my body, my hands don't go the way I want. So yeah, I do the painting. I love it. I just give everybody paintings all the time. (laughs) And in my house, all the walls have the paintings that I do. That's awesome. That's really great. So we always have to ask, what is the most significant adverse reaction you've had in your life? I was luckily born in, uh, at that time, wealthy family. But then we lost everything very quickly, very fast. So I just found myself in a teenager phase losing everything and then I had to start working early find my own path through life because I just kind of have to fight myself through whatever I wanted to do and that worked well actually (laughs) I was able to do it but also I think I was able to do it because I have the advantage of having an early very good education being exposed to English I started learning English when I was 10 years old and that was because they had the conditions to give me that but I think that was the hard one just find myself young and that everything used to shift. But in the end, it's a good thing. It taught me a lot of good things. I wouldn't change anything. (laughs) Having to change your path and what you thought you might do with the resources that you thought you might have, that is definitely something to test yourself and drives you to be as successful as you are. And also diversify too, because then perhaps if one thing doesn't work out, you back up on the writing about quantum physics. Yes. (laughs) 
Well, thank you so much for talking with us today. This has been a lot of fun and we really appreciate your time. We will see you on the treadmill. Yes, <laughs> see you all there. And now for the tease on the next episode of Adverse Reactions. Of monkeys and men. Or Lisa Miller says wildfire smoke isn't monkey business. It's very clear, crystal clear, that the monkeys that were exposed to this wildfire smoke when they were babies, when they were infants, running around in the field cages, have now what appears to be some type of an early stage fibrosis or interstitial lung disease. Thank you all for joining us for this episode of Adverse Reactions presented by the Society of Toxicology. And thank you to Dave Levy at Maestro Studios. That's Maestro with a three, not an E. Who created and produced all the music for Adverse Reactions, including the theme song, Decompose. The viewpoints and information presented in Adverse Reactions represent those of the participating individuals. Although the Society of Toxicology holds the copyright to this production, it has definitely not vetted or reviewed the information presented herein. Nor does presenting and distributing this podcast represent any proposal or endorsement of any position by the Society. You can find out more information about the show at Adverse Reactions Podcast. Dot com. And more information about the Society of Toxicology on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and Twitter. I'm Anne Chappelle. And I'm David Faulkner. This podcast was approved by Anne's mom. Mm-hmm.